I'm Marissa Donnelly, host of the Vulnerability Podcast, a podcast series focused on being vulnerable, being emotional, being deep, and talking about topics that people often shy away from. In this podcast series, you'll see stories of faith, hope, inspiration, darkness, frustration, and everything that really challenges us to speak to our human experience and to do so in shedding our skins and being vulnerable. Today's episode of the Vulnerability Podcast features Scott Shea. Scott has an incredible business career on Wall Street, private equity, venture capital, banking. He's all over the place. He's the co-founder of Signature Bank of New York and is the chairman ever since its formation. But beyond that, he's a constant student of religion. He published his book, In Good Faith, which focuses on fundamental questions of Christianity, monotheism, as well as atheism. And I'm so excited to have him come on the show today and just speak very vulnerably about faith, what it means to have it, and what religion and the belief in something beyond ourselves really means in today's world. So, so excited to welcome Scott Shea. So what my book is about, in a nutshell, is why it's rational to believe in God with all we know about science and the historicity of the Bible and our sense of modern morality. Essentially, I take the, the reader on a journey that I took um, as a monotheist uh, for why it does make sense and why I think the Bible is, if anything, more relevant today than perhaps it's ever been. Um, I think that one of the central, and what I'm learning in, in the course of the book tour is that one of the central contributions that I think I'm making to contemporary discourse is my definition of idolatry. So most people who live in this day and age think idolatry is some old concept of bowing down to statues or sacri- making human sacrifices and the like. But in reality, and, and this is where I think it's important, the Bible's, the whole purpose of the Bible was to overturn idolatry. And what was idolatry? And the Bible defines idolatry through its stories. Idolatry is a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpowers to finite beings, people, of course, that's what, you know, beings uh, like us. Uh, natural processes, ideologies, and in the past, animals. So we may have thought that 3,300 years ago we, 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 we licked the god King Pharaoh, who was able to order the Israelite children to be thrown into the, into the Nile and to be able to order anyone to be killed. But in reality, the whole 20th century was a catalog of God-King idols, the Pol Pot, Mao, the Assad family, the Kim family, mm-hmm. Stalin, Hitler, and it goes on and on. And they all used, like Stalin, all of them used the same tropes as Pharaoh. Parades, poetry, pageantry, theater, all of course backed up by a big army and secret informers. How else was Stalin allowed to start a quarter of the Ukraine and kill all the kulaks and and send tens of millions to the gulag because nobody questioned his authority. And 
that's when, when no one questions authority, it's really bad. I mean, that's super authority. Nobody thought that Stalin had magic powers, but maybe he did because he even made the Soviet space agency broadcast his image into space. So people become drunk with their own power. Not just about the macro, but it's about the micro. So how did Charlie Rose and and Matt Lauer and and Harvey Weinstein and of course Jeff Epstein get away with all of the things that they did because they turned themselves into idols who were unquestioned and unquestionable and they did have super authority over people in the in the in the industry harvey weinstein couldn't make or break someone's career and it really is tough to topple idols and the bible tells us that it's on the big side and when we're talking about countries and it's also in our intimate encounters that idolatry is really really bad and as you're saying this i'm thinking too like we make idols of you know electronics we make idols of social media there's so many different ways that in contemporary world we've taken this idea and made so many other things have power over us and so it, it's fascinating to to kind of break that down and think about it you're you're 100 right and in a funny kind of way the bible even anticipated how technology could take us over and have a life of its own i mean people generally don't really carefully read the Tower of uh, Babel story. If you read the previous chapter, chapter 10, verse 5, it says, there were many people and many languages. And then all of a sudden you get to chapter 11. And this is how the Bible makes points. It makes it through stories. And in chapter 11, somehow, the people who were building, building houses and cities out of stones discover bricks and mortar and how to build structures where they don't need to just live near stones. And they start out, what do they do? It says they're starting out, they want to build homes in a city. And what do they end up doing? They end up building a tower to the heavens because they try to deify themselves. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we are living in an age where we are deified through technology. I mean, Yuval Harari says you know, in his book, Homo Deus, that the, the next gods are coming from Silicon Valley, that we don't need our own gods. And, and in a way, he is sadly right when it comes to emerging idolatry. That in our, our self-glorification, I'm, I'm thinking of like Instagram and, you know, selfies and that whole wave. Although self-empowerment is amazing and it, that's a topic I dive into in my writing all the time. There has to be kind of a line we draw between what's really empowerment and self-love versus kind of making idols out of ourselves. Or on the flip side, like the comparison. We're always comparing to other people. We're making gods essentially out of these people that we follow on these social media sites and thinking, oh, they're perfect. They have the best body, the best life, the best career, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, you're, you've, you've nailed it. I mean, self-deification is really problematic. I, I, I'll tell you a story. When I first started out, so I started out at a company called Solomon Brothers right out of business school. Mm -hmm. And I used to take the, the Lexington line from 96 downtown in those days before it was air conditioned. So I'm dating myself here. <laughs> um, but I, I happened as I was getting in one day to bump into a trader who said, you know, he, he was a middle-level trader, traded fixed income, and he said he'd drive me downtown every day that I was, you know, at the same time. He was very fastidious. So anyway, he drove me downtown. And again, these were these antediluvian days before cell phones. 
And so my cost for taking this ride with him was listening to his, uh, his, his, his personal story, maybe being his therapist. I don't know. But in any event, he describes, so here's a middle level successful trader who told me that all that was important to him was amassing essentially power power through money, through connections, making the right political contributions. There was no, nobody else was actually important to him. That's why he loved detailed regulations, because if he could figure out a way to meander around them and take advantage of the other guy, gal, the other person, and he would do so because all it was about was amassing power for him and maybe passing it on to his family. And I realized as I was driving down every day that, you know what? People talk about Wall Street deifying money. Actually, Wall Street doesn't deify money. Um, people deify themselves and they use money as a tool in the same way that Farrah used armies and informers as a tool. And unfortunately, again, if you go back to the most recent uh, problems at a micro level, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins, the, the Charlie Roses, the, the, the Matt Lowers and Jeff Epstein's of the world, they amassed power through money, but they were deifying themselves. And when that sort of thing happens, the horrors start to unfold. And unfortunately, we see that today. So self-deification is a huge, huge problem that I don't see, frankly, really uh, as a, a mitigating right now i see it unfortunately exacerbating yeah i absolutely agree with you i think it's it's one of those things i don't know if we recognize it as much or you know we we pass it off as something else like oh you know that's that's just a part of you know what it means to be in this society or oh it's just it is what it is but it, it's it's not you know it's a problem that we have to address especially when we get to you know more serious issues where people's lives are being impacted and it's it's one of those things you can't just turn your head or be like oh well it's not happening to me so it's not relevant like it is relevant well it's very relevant because and and the thing i try to say in my book is that i think the one thing that can bridge believers and non-believers is the golden rule which is the way the bible says it you know don't do unto someone else what you wouldn't want done unto you and that means looking out for the other person mm -hmm. i mean the central story of the Bible is the Exodus, and it begins with people who refuse to look the other way. The Egyptian midwives who stand up, who don't stand up, who don't say precisely what they're doing, but who refuse to throw the Israelite baby boys, in particular um, Moses, into the Nile. They just refuse. They, they lie to Pharaoh, but they refuse. And then Pharaoh's daughter, who it would have been so easy for her to turn her eyes away and let that baby boy float down the river, but she doesn't, even though it's at risk to her own life. And then Moses himself, when he when he sees an Egyptian taskmaster, he's raised as a prince. I mean, a, a you know a senior person within the Pharaonic administration. He's got all the wealth and privilege of a rock star. And yet when he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating an Israelite, he doesn't just walk away, avert his eyes. Mm -hmm. Instead, of course, he kills the Egyptian taskmaster, but then he's found out and he spends 40 years in the wilderness by himself, probably thinking no good deed goes unpunished. But he does 
the right thing. He doesn't avert his gaze. Mm-hmm. And that's an, another critical lesson from the Bible is it's so easy to walk away. We all, the temptation is so easy within corporations, within uh, even not-for-profit organizations to just avert one's gaze. But the Bible's saying, even though there's a personal cost and even though it might be hefty, you can't avert your gaze. Well, and I think you make a good point about how that bridges believers and non-believers because it's it's like showing up for people, caring about people, figuring out what the problem is. Those are things that are they're more like fundamentally human values as opposed to, oh, this is only associated with this specific religion. So I think there's power in that, in that, in the fact that it can bind us together because it's choosing to invest in other people and choosing to try actively to make a change rather than walking away from it. You know, that's exactly it. I mean, I, 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 before when I was writing the book and researching it and then again, and now even more so on book tour, I talk to a lot of atheists mm-hmm. and they say to me, well, what relevance does a book on questioning religion and atheism have to be? I don't believe in God. I don't I say, you know what, whether you believe or you don't believe, that's, I'm not, the stakes are too high. Most people don't change their mind on issues like that. I said, what I care about is whether you'll join me in the golden rule, which is, again, not doing unto somebody else what you wouldn't want done unto you. A lot of unethical ethics, atheist ethics, come when people say they don't believe in God, okay, so we don't share that common divine spark, okay, I get that, uh, that that's what you believe. But if I don't share a common spark with you, then the same way I was talking about a trader who would give me a lift onto Wall Street, then it's okay to think that, and it's okay to deify your group or you as an individual. That's a key lesson from the Bible. I mean, how did the, the Nazis call the Jews vermin? They, they said Jews weren't weren't human beings. They didn't deserve, there was no golden rule relating to Jews. And unfortunately, in racist societies, the same thing holds true, is that the other person is deemed not to have the same, I would call it a spark of divinity, but even the same spark of humanity in, in an atheist term. So I get very worried about that because if you read writings of people like Pete Singer or even Richard Dawkins who say, well, you know, it's, it, it's, it's okay to commit infanticide if the child would be a huge cost to society because it'll benefit everybody else. But that leaves the golden rule at the door. You know, starting to think that way creates a path toward horrors. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you, when you have people that ask these questions or that come up to you and say, okay, you know, they, they question the golden rule and they're like, well, how can we see eye to eye? I think that's, that's the type of questions that I get a lot from people who are non-believers where they, they'll be like, well, you know, Christian people feel this way and they don't see eye to eye and I don't see eye to eye with them. And, and it kind of leaves like this sense of like, oh, it'll never work out. But what do you think, what are the keys in working towards that golden rule? Or what do you tell people when they come to you? kind of with attitude of opposition. So I tell them that's where we can unite, the golden rule. And usually I talk to people about how if we stray from the golden rule, and in, in my book I talk about a few other alternative ethical frameworks, mm-hmm. but they all lead 
towards someone making a decision. I mean, for example, in Peter Singer, he'd say that anybody below 30 days in age or above, let's say, 80 shouldn't receive anything but routine health care. We shouldn't expend resources on that. And I heard one medical director when I was researching the book who told me, uh, for a major insurance company, told me that 20% of all healthcare costs could be eliminated if we just didn't provide health more than routine healthcare for infants uh, below 30 days or people above 80. Well, you could fund a lot of free stuff for that. You could fund, you know, colleges for many people, college education. You could expand healthcare for other people, but it leads you down a road. Well, who else should we exclude? Who else doesn't deserve to be a person? And Peter Singer actually says that. He says people above and below a certain age don't fit his definition of personhood. Well, he becomes the person in charge of deciding that. So essentially, he deifies himself or whoever makes those decisions. And again, it becomes very scary because it's a very slippery path. It becomes a path that could open its way to racism, to all sorts of dangerous paths. So I try to convince folks that you just have to grasp the golden rule with me. If you do that as a believer or non-believer, I'm okay. And I'm quick to say, by the way, that sadly, really, really sadly, there are many idolaters who are in monotheist cloth who are really don't believe in the golden rule. They purport to be religious, whatever that means, but really they're only ritually religious. Because if you don't believe in the golden rule, then fundamentally you don't believe with the beginning of the Bible, which is that everybody is created in the image of God. Man, woman, every race, every creed, we all share that spark of divinity. And if you don't believe that, I don't think you're really grasping the Bible. But I, I sadly find folks who call themselves religious who don't somehow get on the train that everybody's created in God's image and that the golden rule applies to people of all faiths, not just the one that you happen to be a member of. Right. I think that's such a key point because people sometimes get in their own definitions of faith or just kind of get lost in their own interpretations and forget that at the core, like you said, we're all created equal. We're all created in this divine image. And when you keep sight of that first and foremost, then it helps all the other decisions and other perspectives stem out from that. But if you don't have that, you don't really have that Christian faith, especially. Well, I would actually say monotheistic faith. Yeah, and, monotheistic faith. Yeah, better way to... And one thing that I would say, and I think this is where I sort of recharge my batteries and... and and this is where, and I was thinking about this during some of your recent podcasts, actually, which is the notion of prayer. Because I think prayer to me, and this is the one thing that's changed most about me since I wrote the book, because I've, I don't know whether the term, this is the correct term, but I've sort of doubled down on prayer, mm -hmm. um, which is prayer is the point at which you're, communicating with a omnipotent being, the Almighty, who you can't lie to. 
I mean, we all are sort of, and I'll certainly confess myself, everybody, I, I'm good at, you know, sort of deceiving myself. And I think most people are. I think Sigmund Freud said that we all become geniuses when it comes to our self, mm-hmm. when it comes to our, our self-justification. That's the quote. And yet prayer for me is at one point where you can't make any excuses because you have the harshest light, the brightest light on you. and you can't lie to an almighty. Right. So it forces you to look inside of yourself. Okay, where am I screwing up? What am I not doing? Where am I averting my gaze? Where am I nursing grudges that I shouldn't be nursing or avoiding topics and people that I really need to grasp or not dealing with a wrong that's right in front of me? And if, if prayer's really working and it goes beyond the hymnal and goes to real, the real hard work of prayer, mm-hmm. and I think that's where you can get in touch with, it's one way to get in touch with your authentic self. And for me, it's not always so pretty. Yeah. To do that. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's not easy and it's not fun. I think changing the way we think about prayer in general. Because I know, like, when I grew up, it was all about, you know, asking God for blessings or asking Him for help during more difficult times. And I mean, that has power, definitely. But as I've grown up, I've learned, okay, that's really not what it's about. It's not about asking for things. It's not about being given things or expecting things, but it's more about building this relationship. And so I like what you said, you know, just right now, where it's, it's not even about, I mean, it is about a relationship, but even beyond that, it's about a clearer look at yourself and figuring out how you can walk better in the ways of your faith and kind of shape yourself to be helpful to other people. It's not just about you, but it, it's like looking into a mirror and really seeing your reflection so that you can then reflect that onto other people. And and the answer to prayer is not always. Sometimes the answer is not the the easiest answer. It's not just, I mean, God's not a cosmic vending machine. And mm-hmm. I think one of the lessons we get in the Bible is that when Moses, who had a, almost like a direct intercom to God, I mean, he was, you know, in a totally different class than uh, any of the rest of us. So he prayed for two things once where he wanted easy answers. He prayed, he said, it's too much for me to, to lead this people. Please give me 70 subsidiary prophets. Uh, who can work with me, and also the people are demanding this mana isn't good enough, they're demanding meat. So the next day, flocks of quail fly over, and, and they're caught by the Israelites, and people are eating meat until they can't eat meat anymore. And then 70 elders become prophets and are prophesizing. And interestingly enough, so Moses got the easy answer to both, but we never hear in the Bible again about these 70 prophets. They sort of fade into the distance. And the quail, people eat it, and they become, it's like too much quail. It's coming out of their noses. <laughs> and so that Moses got exactly what he asked for, but it didn't help the situation. Later, after the spies are sent to the, or not really spies, scouts, is a better translation, actually, are sent to the promised land, and and they come back with a bad report, as it were. Moses prays again. At this point, he thinks he's marching straight into the promised land. And that he's going to lead the people, and they, you know, two, less than two years before they were in, they were slaves. Now they're going to be in the promised land. But he realizes that no, this 
this group of people still have the slave mentality. The Israelites got out of Egypt, but the Egypt didn't get out of the Israelites. And so he prays again, and the answer is 40 years of wandering in the desert. Now, that's clearly not what Moses wanted, but it was actually the right answer. And, you know, it's like the Mick Jagger, you know, it's like the Rolling Stones. You know, you can't always get what you want, but sometimes you get what you need. Mm -hmm. And that's what was needed at that point. It was needed that the Israelites of this generation die out another generation actually make it into the promised land and, and to a certain degree that was the foreshadowing that Moses wouldn't be the one to make it into the promised land but his prayer was answered but it was answered in a way that wasn't easy it required him to partner with God and to teach these people for 38 years which couldn't have been fun but it was the best outcome under the circumstances and we lose sight of that because we always we like God to just provide us with, like with Moses, provide him with the assistance, you know, some 70 assistants and lots of uh, great quail and orange sauce, probably. too. <laughs> I talk about this a lot because I think it's something that I'm so guilty of. And it's funny because it's like a lesson you have to keep learning and relearning. At least I feel that way. It's like I, I remind myself of this and I'm, I'm good about it for a little bit. And then the next thing happens in life. And then all of a sudden I'm like getting mad because my prayer didn't get answered. In the way I wanted it to. And then it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I have to trust that it happens for a reason. But it's hard. But I think as we continue to grasp that and work towards that and understand that prayer isn't about being on our terms, I think that gives a lot of clarity to why things are the way they are. Not in the fact that, oh, you know, bad things happen for a specific reason, but more of like what we can trust in and rely on in those bad moments to be like, okay, I know that I'm not alone in this. I know that I'm going to get through it. Absolutely. I mean, a prayer, while it's not easy, it also can be deeply comforting uh, because we we do get in touch with ourselves. I mean, we can, I think, feel a sense of contentment's the wrong word, but at least ease. I mean, Mm -hmm. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. told a story about when he was interviewing to be chief pastor for the first time at a church, how he reviewed his sermons and he reviewed all sorts of stuff and he was very nervous. And then he prayed and he realized he was going to do the best he can do. He was going to be the authentic Martin Luther King Jr., not a made-up Martin Luther King Jr., Mm -hmm. and he was going to trust in God that the right path would be taken. And then he said he was able to fall asleep like a baby. And I think if we actually do expose ourselves to that bright light that only the Almighty can shine on us, or we can only shine on ourselves when we're talking to the Almighty, where there no, there's no way to lie to ourselves or obviously to the Almighty, and we know that we're doing the, the best, we're our best self, then we can feel an, a, a comfort and an ease. We fully partnered with the Almighty. We fully partnered with God, and we have to trust. Even if we can't see the immediate reason for whatever the outcome is, it's the right outcome. Absolutely. It's that trust, I think, that's key. The trusting the unknown. I mean, that's what faith is, in my opinion. It's Faith is just the belief in what you can't tangibly see or feel or have in front of you, but you know that it's there. Yes, and it's a loyalty. 
you can't just have faith on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. <laughs> it's a loyalty. And, and, it, and to the extent that that continues within you and, and, and you recognize that every single person you're dealing with has a spark of divinity in them, it changes the whole way you look at the world and it changes it. It allows you to not feel uncomfortable about not getting, it's a double negative, it allows you to feel comfortable without getting a lot of likes on Instagram or on Facebook or because you're being your authentic self. If you have the highest rated podcast or not, you're doing what's important. Mm -hmm. And and that gives you a feeling of contentment. And honestly, I was hearing that in, in some of your, your last couple of podcasts where what's important to you is connecting with, with listeners, making a difference. And if you just, if any of us want to just be the most popular person, well, that's going to unfortunately require us to self-deify to some degree. Yeah. Whereas if you're your most authentic person, then it's all about making the most difference, which is a totally, totally different path. Yeah. I think when we, when we take the focus off of ourselves, we take the focus off of, you know, the likes, the popularity, the, you know, look at me you know, from faith to every aspect of our lives, then I think it's it's that mirror again that's shining the mirror back on ourselves and then we're able to really reflect the best and most authentic parts of ourselves as opposed to just staring in that mirror and making ourselves the idol. That, I think, has been one of the conversations that I've really enjoyed having with people um, as I've been talking about my book and on panels is about the centering power of prayer. There's a, you know, people are now into all sorts of things, meditation, which is great. I think meditation is great. I think it provides um, some of the same aspects of prayer. But what prayer does is offer that additional coordinate of, am I doing something that is going to be better for the world? Am I doing something that's going to hasten redemption? Am I doing something that's going to hasten an, a, a messianic era? What am I doing that's good for the world, not just for me? I mean, the one thing about meditation and some practices that I've talked to people about, particularly in terms of non-believers, that sort of self-introspection can become very self-centered as well. I don't want to say self-deification because that's not always the case. That's frequently not the case. But it has the risk, whereas prayer is about a dialect. It's about not only you, but mm -hmm. your purpose on earth. And that's, I think, a critical lesson. But I want to hasten to say one thing again, and I say this to non-believers, whether you're a believer or not, as long as you believe that everybody should act according to the golden rule, this planet will be a much better place if we if we get to that point. Absolutely. And I think that's an awesome takeaway for listeners is, you know, beyond the specifics and not stressing about, oh, am I doing this or how is my prayer look or, you know, what do I need to do? I think that that golden rule is the core. If you are looking at yourself and then you're looking outward into the world and how can I follow that golden rule and embody that golden rule and really care about and invest in other people, that's what's going to make the change. And I think that's the most powerful takeaway. And people have made tremendous change by doing that. I mean, the Nelson Mandela's and the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s of the world and the Natan Sharansky's, they all started out by not averting their gaze, by partnering with God, 
certainly in their authentic leadership, not worrying about how they looked. I mean, it, the Bible says Moses was the most humble person, period. Now, humility is not just about shrinking, you know, and, and sort of, you know, shrinking into one shell. I mean, Moses knew he was a great prophet. Moses knew he led the people out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. Moses knew he talked to God and brought down the Ten Commandments. He certainly knew that, and and he knew his capabilities. But it wasn't about him. It was never about him. Mm -hmm. When God threatens to destroy the people and start over, he says, well, then write me out of your book. And it's it's an interesting lesson because the thing we can control the most is what we do. I mean, the only thing Moses could do right at that point is say, write me out of your book. There was nothing else he could say. And with that, God relented. And the only thing we can control, and, that, and that's one of the great things about prayer, pray as though everything depends on God and act as though everything depends upon you. And I think when you do that, you get a tailwind if you can center yourself in in a something that makes the world better, your family better, your relationships better, then you get a tailwind. I really, on a personal level, I really, really believe that and have felt that. That's great to kind of reset and really think about those things that I think in the busyness of our daily lives, we so often forget. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast, to share your heart with my audience and for the transparency. I think talking about faith sometimes can be a challenge, but that's kind of the reason why I put this podcast together in the first place is to take on those vulnerable topics, to be real, to share the, about what's important. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this time.